Hey friends, Alex Kapitko here, Centered from Reality Podcast. Um, Eve of Thanksgiving, kind of a later episode again. Hey, it'll be out tonight, so maybe tomorrow if you're driving to Thanksgiving, you can listen to it. Or tonight if you're driving somewhere, or or if you just want to hear my voice, whatever. Um, since it's Thanksgiving Eve, I poured myself a uh, high noon, you know, one of these sun sips, high noons. They're the the sparkling seltzer things with a splash of vodka in them. So I figured, you know... Cheers to Thanksgiving. Might as well. Um, anyways, there's a lot of things I want to talk about today. I want to talk about the COP27 summit, I guess if you want to call it that, that just wrapped up in Egypt. I also want to talk about basically this plan to fund poorer countries to deal with climate change. And it's kind of it's kind of fitting in with that climate reparations idea that I talked about a few months ago. I also want to talk about kind of a climate cold war or a climate arms race between China and the United States and how if it's not handled well, there always could be a military conflict that ends up happening. So that's never good, obviously. I also want to touch on Trump's uh, troubles in court, not talk about that too much. But first, I just want to say, maybe it's just because it's Thanksgiving going into the Christmas season. I watched a movie last night that was amazing. Um, it was called Falling for Christmas on Netflix. Lindsay Lohan and the guy from Acapulco, whose name is escaping me. But it kind of felt like a Hallmark movie mixed with Lindsay Lohan from like the early 2000s, and it was perfect. It was filmed in like Park City in Utah. Kind of, you know, typical like girl loses her memory. She's kind of a rich like um, hotel magnate's daughter loses her memory and ends up in a cute little quaint ski lodge with this guy who runs it, doesn't know who she is, they fall in love, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, it was just really nice. Christmas gem, guilty pleasure, whatever you want to call it. Maybe I was just stressed yesterday and it just hit right, but it was great to see. It was really great to see. Also, it looks like our buddy Kevin McCarthy wants to impeach DHS Secretary Mayorkas over the border. I'm like, all right, go for it if you want. Um... They better have a good case. Don't turn this into a circus. A good speaker, like I talked about yesterday, which I don't even like Nancy Pelosi's policies at all, but I would, I'll admit that she's a good speaker. A good speaker would probably harness in this stuff, but it seems like McCarthy's going full crazy. So, yeah, as I'm recording this, again, it's about 5 o'clock Central Time here on Wednesday. There's been another, looks like, another school shooting in, in um, Philadelphia. Four teens injured near the high school. Okay, so not at the high school. I'm just looking at, I have the news on here in the background. Uh, we also had a shooting at a Walmart. I believe it was last night. One of the managers, I guess, was the one who did it. Again, here we are. Every day, something, something depressing involving a shooting. Sometimes I wish that the people that say we don't need any gun restrictions and... There's nothing we can do. I wish they would just sometimes admit that, like, they're fine with accepting some death in exchange for the Second Amendment. I don't agree with that, but I feel like it would be more genuine if they just came out and said, you know what, we want to keep our guns in exchange for this stuff. Because, yeah, it's exhausting. And I don't want to turn this into a long gun discussion, but it's pretty, pretty insane. It's pretty insane, tragic, depressing. I also, speaking of insane, tragic, and depressing... The right wing, and not all the right, believe me, not all the right, but some people on the right wing, like Tucker Carlson, probably the biggest name, 
have had on guests recently who are basically blaming the victims of the Q nightclub shooting in um, in Colorado Springs. They are blaming the victims. They are blaming the victims by basically saying this is what we knew would happen with all this grooming going on. You know, the big the big new red scare of this century in the culture war is grooming, right? And I guess the way they're framing this, and these, like I said, are not all right-wingers, but definitely more the far right. They're like, see, this is what happens. There's all these groomers. It was inevitable. We knew there was going to be a shooting. We have to stop the grooming. Now, to me, I looked at this and said, we've seen a party, mainly the GOP, talk very shittily about the LGBTQ community for a very long time. And when you do that for a very long time, you're going to have some nut jobs out there who take that to heart. It's same with the great replacement theory stuff. It's what happens when you just keep, keep fueling the flames. That's what I saw out of this. Not groomers are to blame. So, you know, it's just atrocious. Like, it just seems like we've really, really, really gone downhill even since that, what, that nightclub shooting in, in Florida, what, a couple of years ago now? I think it was in, what, Orlando at that Pulse nightclub. You, you even had, like, the Marco Rubios really condemning it, you know? Um, there was really no one on the mainstream right either blaming groomers or just saying thoughts and prayers. It, it, just, it just really seems like things have gone downhill very quickly, and it's disgusting. It's really disgusting. Um, I don't think the grooming thing makes any sense at all. I've always said with everything there's a grain of truth, an ounce of truth, maybe even a speck of truth in this case, where I think a lot of parents don't always feel comfortable with issues like trans, transgender identity being discussed in like young classrooms, and they're usually not. I also don't think parents sometimes want some of these like more social values enforced at school. People want their kids at school to learn. I can understand that. I really can, but usually that's not what happens in the classroom. So I think it's insane to turn it into this very homophobic and dangerous rhetoric. So anyways, I went way too long on that. I was trying to not, but let's get into, first off, a bad day for Donald Trump. Very, very bad day for Donald Trump. Or I guess we could say like a bad week because, I mean, it's Wednesday. Let's just say the last like four or five days have been literal shit for him. Excuse my language, but... I've talked, to, I've talked about Trump a lot lately, so I'm not going to stay on this for too long. But I would like to talk about yesterday specifically. I was talking to my dad yesterday, and he said something to the effect of, it looks like they're really going to get Trump this time. And I told him, I'll believe it when I see it, right? Because Trump is so slippery. He seems to just elongate these trials, drain them, get away, throw other people under the bus. He's kind of a cockroach in so many ways, his, from his eating habits to his survival skills. I mean, you know, I, as you guys know, I'm not a big fan of the guy, but I will say that I am very always impressed with his survival instincts and his ability to always just deflect. So that is something he's very good at. So we'll have to wait and see. But basically, I do think things are looking different this time. And from some of his truth social rants and from his speeches and rallies I've seen, interviews he's done, it's clear that he's nervous, right? He always lashes out like an angry and cornered trash rat when he's nervous, and he's been doing that. He's been definitely lashing out everywhere. But anyways, getting to the actual news story away from my rants, it looks like Trump's taxes could finally be scrutinized by the House, and then maybe even eventually by the public. 
CNBC reports in quotes here, the Supreme Court on Tuesday rejected Trump's bid to temporarily block the House Ways and Means Committee from going to get his tax returns as part of a probe on how the tax agency audits the returns of sitting presidents. There were no noted dissidents in the court. Now, I must say that's really interesting. That's why I really emphasize that last part. There were no noted dissidents in the SCOTUS decision to reject Trump's block. Of course, he's furious, lashing out, like I said, like a uh, trash rat. And he's furious because, of course, he appointed three justices, Barrett, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh, right? And we all know that in his eyes, he appoints them, he expects loyalty. Obviously not how things work in the real world, but for him, at least in his business, it's always been that way. And Trump went on a rant on Truth Social full of this victimhood. He said, why would anybody be surprised that the Supreme Court has ruled against me? They always do. The Supreme Court has lost its honor, prestige, and standing, has become nothing more than a political body with our country paying the price. He's really good at just turning this all into a, oh, I'm the most attacked president in U.S. history and all this stuff. It's like, come on, man. Now, the House Ways Means, uh, sorry, the House Ways and Means Committee does have the ability to review the taxes now, from my understanding, or at least get into this probe on it. It hasn't been blocked anymore. Of course, the problem here is that it's controlled by the Democrats for only about three more weeks when you include the holidays, and I think they have a recess over the holidays, if I'm correct. And then the Republicans are going to control the committees after that, right? So I do not see anything coming out of this, so maybe Trump could slip through the cracks again on this. Maybe he won't, but it's not a lot of time... We know government isn't always quick, but, you know, we, one can hope. CBS, um, no, sorry, CNBC also reports that at a hearing Tuesday, a panel of judges in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit appeared strongly inclined to rule in favor of the Department of Justice request to overturn a Trump-appointed federal judge's decision to appoint a watchdog. Basically, the thing was is they wanted to review documents seized from Mar-a-Lago before the prosecutors could use them for a probe. So that is not happening. They're like, no, man, you're just going to give us the damn documents. So it's good, I guess. Also, some more revelations have come out of Georgia, you know, where Trump asked for thousands of votes, sounding like the mob boss he, I guess, wishes he was. And Senator Lindsey Graham, the Trump um, something kisser or sucker, um, he has testified in private for the grand jury, the state grand jury. The grand jury is collecting evidence for the criminal investigation into whether Trump and his allies interfered in Georgia's 2020 presidential election. That could be interesting. We will have to just keep up on that. Also, Trump lawyers were in New York City appearing in front of a Manhattan court. That's that case involving fraud in the Trump Foundation. That one also is getting interesting, but again... I, they would actually have to find some sort of connections between what the organization was doing and Trump. And right now, it seems like Alan Weiselberg is taking all the blame for this. So again, will they bring it back to Trump? I don't know. Of course, Trump has a pattern of dragging out litigation. So he's probably doing that here. But I guess the thing is here is that there's so many cases that maybe one of them has to stick. There's just so much going on that you would have to think so, right? That's, that's my hopes, at least. Maybe I'm just totally wish-casting. Moving on, I want to focus this middle section on climate. A couple things relating to climate. So, COP27 
has recently wrapped up. I think it was a couple days. There was the 18th. It wrapped up in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. It occurred from early November. I think it was like the 6th of November until November 18th. And just a refresher, refresher sorry, on what COP27 is. This was the 27th meeting of the United Nations Climate Change Conference. Back in early September, like I mentioned at the top of the show, I talked about climate reparations or the idea of wealthy countries helping developing countries get aid and money to deal with the worst effects of climate change. This is because many of the countries least able to deal with these issues or afford to deal with climate destructions are usually the ones impacted. Seems like the global south, more developing areas, always seem to be the ones that are the most impacted. And, of course, they're not responsible for a lot of the industrialization that led to this. But, you know, we can go on and on about that. But at this COP summit and about every other last one for the last two decades, basically, the question has always been how do countries help to rescue and rebuild the physical and social infrastructure of countries being devastated by extreme weather, mainly linked to climate change. And this summit in Egypt was somewhat interesting, I guess you could say, because countries did agree on a fund to deal with this, a fund with a D at the end. By the end of the deal, a key takeaway of the summit, and I don't want to get into all the specifics, I kind of want to focus on this somewhat historic fund that they talked about, Anyways, a key takeaway of the summit was that members agreed on a global fund for loss and damage, providing financial assistance basically to poor nations that have been stricken by climate disaster. I guess they haven't actually been able to do this before, from my understanding. Usually it's just about setting some sort of general standards for reducing carbon emissions, gas emissions, etc. And this deal was important, at least in creating dialogue. Now, of course, there's no agreement on how <laughs> on how the finances are actually provided or who's going to pay it or how they're going to raise money or anything else, but it did create the dialogue and there was an agreement. Also, the I don't know, the Guardian notes here in quotes that the deal was far from perfect with several key elements flawed or lacking. Some countries said the commitments on limiting temperatures to 1.5 degrees Celsius, sorry represented no progress at the COP26 conference in Glasgow last year, and the language on phasing out fossil fuels was weak. And they're not wrong. I guess the question that comes to my mind is whether a climate fund like this is possible when countries can't even do what they agreed to during previous COP sessions, or it's always the bare minimum. Like, I remember talking about COP last year. Of course, Greta Thunberg was there, you know, saying, you guys are all meeting in here and we're out here protesting. I... I think she's annoying in a lot of ways, but I kind of understood the sentiment in this case. Also, it does just seem like they come up with these small numbers, don't really get into specifics, and then every year they meet to kind of check up on things. And of course, countries generally have reduced some of the worst outcomes so far, but I feel like we're just like pushing this down the road, and eventually it's going to come back, right? And also, interestingly, with this climate fund, it looked like the deal was going to be, wasn't going to happen, basically, and it was, but it was hard to come to, and agreement was rushed. Because basically, according to that Guardian article, in the final hours, countries basically wrangled over single words in an outcome that spanned issues from, again, a temperature goal, the phasing out of fossil fuels, the needs and rights of indigenous people, the protection of nature, and how to engineer a just transition to clean energy for those economically dependent on fossil fuels. That's a lot. Look, that's a lot. That is a heavy order. It's a tall order. 
to me, this seems kind of like a laundry list of things that are constantly discussed, yet never actually achieved at these forms of summits or organizations, whatever you want to call them. It just seems like we've always been talking about this, and then you kind of have some countries that can do them, but international uniformity to me just sounds fairly unlikely, to be completely honest. And there's a guy, Richard Montford, who writes in The Guardian, For three decades, world leaders at international conferences have pledged to cut greenhouse gas emissions, and greener energy sources have been deployed. Yet emissions have continued to rise. Much like other summits and international organizations, it does seem like this is constantly the case, and maybe we are in need of something new. And I can't disagree. Like, I, I'm still a supporter of some aspects of the UN and NATO just because I do think you need kind of a structure for dialogue. Like, you need some sort of legal structure and framework for how different groups work together, talk, you need a chain of command, etc. But I, I just feel like every year, I mean, there's been 27 cops and we're still talking about the same issue. Look, like, of course we are because it's a difficult issue. But I, I just feel like sometimes if you keep doing the same thing and you're not getting the same results, that's kind of delusional. Now, moving on, though, I want to focus less on the COP27 criticisms, which I have a lot of and more on the climate fund itself, which was historic in it. And I think there is, of course, general agreement amongst a lot of people, especially the younger people, that these type of summits like COP are flawed. Of course, just the costs of getting there are insane sometimes. We also could probably agree that replacing them is hard. I think everyone seems to agree with that as well. But moving on, I'm hesitant about this climate fund and whether it will actually work, to be honest. Kind of, again, like the, guy, the idea of climate reparations and evening the playing field etc sounds great but how do we do it and to me it seems somewhat unrealistic to think that governments will pay for it a and that tax that tax players can be convinced i think that's also a big thing i think there have to be more innovative ways to do this to convince the public as well and to fund projects and reduction campaigns the Guardian article from earlier has something that I agree with, and it talks about is kind of one of the big hurdles for these issues. It writes, there is still no sign of electorates in richer, richer countries being willing to vote for rationing or much higher prices for car use, air travel, meat consumption, and other particularly damaging activities. And we've seen that time and time again. And, you know, I, I've talked with conservatives and think tanks in California, and we'll we kind of even come to agree on some of these issues where like a lot of people have other problems and when they see like energy grid failures and expensive electric cars and blackouts etc then they see the rising costs of fuel the rising costs of taxes on everything people just say i don't particularly give a shit about putting more money into an issue that has been demagogued for so long and again i'm i believe in climate change i do but it's hard to convince people sometimes. It really is. And I think the Guardian's right that there's just no sign that electorates in richer countries are willing to vote for higher prices. And I get it. I get it. Prices are already high, right? And to add some context here, in 2009 at the Copenhagen summit, there was an agreement by countries to get about $100 billion of climate financing to poorer countries by 2020. Of course, it's fitting to say that by 2021, only about $83 billion was actually arriving. 
I mean, that's a decent amount. We're at 83% of what they promised. So I guess that sounds promising. But The Economist has a good article on this. And it notes that even $100 billion would not be enough. It cites a report that was commissioned by the UN that calculates that poor countries, excluding China, because China doesn't fit into a specific box, in my opinion. But it calculates, in quotes here, poor countries will need $2.4 trillion annually by 2030 to tackle global warming. Around half can be raised domestically, leaving an annual shortfall of more than $1 trillion. I'm not a big math expert, guys, but I think we all know that is significantly more than $100 billion over 10 years. They're asking for $2.4 trillion annually. And I will not even pretend to know where they get these numbers, and I'm sure there's debate over if this is saying all of it or if there's alternatives. But what I get out of this is you need a mix of FDI, foreign direct investment, as well as states raising money domestically. Like, you need a mix, and right now we're not getting that. I also think that it is, again, hard to lecture, especially developing countries that rely on fossil fuels. It's really hard to lecture them, especially if you're from a Western country that has been flourishing over the exploitation of other countries. They use bad forms of fuel because there is a need to try to catch up and be more developed and and create a more sustainable economy. They also have debt crises, crises constantly, and it's going to be hard to get them to stop. And also, it's easier for foreign companies, foreign countries both, to invest in richer countries, right? Also, in richer countries, people also in richer countries don't want to help because economies are beset by COVID-era debts, rising interest rates, and soaring energy prices. So it's really, um, it's really difficult to see how you could raise that much money by our current way of thinking about it. And I guess the thing with COP27 is that they understand the urgency, but they don't seem to want to be creative in how we do it. Because again, there's really no price tag or plan. And I think it's also ironic, I just wanted to mention this before I forget, that even Egypt, who hosted this COP27 summit, just a couple weeks ago, I believe, devalued its currency and secured a bailout from the IMF. So this isn't, this isn't a country that could be really involved in this either. I just don't know about you guys, but it's just not a great look that ensures things can change, right? Now, enough with the criticism, though, because I think the big question is, is, is what do we do? And it's difficult. And one article discusses how John Kerry, in quotes, has announced to basically encourage firms from the rich world with green aspirations to pay to shut polluting power plants in poor countries down. And in return, the firms would receive credits. However, I don't think that's great. And I agree with some other writings that note this wouldn't even suffice and it wouldn't even be effective. And I basically think a more creative solution could be more in private investment mixed with public sector investment. So this is kind of where... I, I balance a fine line between being a hyper-capitalist, but also someone who believes the state is important. And that's why I managed to piss off both sides, you know. Um, I know some people might oppose this form of solution, but personally I think it makes a lot of sense. So the Prime Minister of Barbados, for example, has proposed a scheme that basically looks at attracting more private investment, and it would likely also involve the IMF. 
and there is support from France on the topic. Emmanuel Macron has said it's not a bad idea. So you get IMF funds as well as getting private investment into the country. The Economist discusses how, in quotes, this fund would issue $500 billion in what they call special drawing rights, or SDRS. It's basically kind of a low-cost sovereign overdraft, <laughs> which sounds complicated, but it could be commingled with funds raised from uh, private investors, and it would basically reduce the overall cost of capital, which is a kind of a problem right now. If you look at like FDI into some of these countries, it's an issue. Now, I've read that this could have its issues because, let's be honest, if you're getting money from the public sector in any way, or even international organizations like the IMF, it would involve printing money. And I don't think I have to remind everyone that inflation is high right now. Also, at least in places like the United States, there would be less scrutiny because I think the Treasury Department can only look at things over 60, I don't want to say it's 60 billion, and governments could basically slip lower funds past the electorate so their tax dollars would go to it without actually agreeing, debating, discussing any of this. And it could obviously cause a backlash if the electorate found out because instead of getting the public on board, they would be putting it past the public. So there's, there's arguments against that as well. But both The Economist and The Guardian also discuss another option that's interesting. And it's probably the one, I mean, it, it's kind of, kind of similar to SDRS, which is, again, special drawing rights. But this one more looks at investing in developing countries can be perilous and a wash for investors, as I've kind of touched on. And for this reason, investors usually demand higher returns on ventures in the developing world, which I think is bullshit, but also understandable because it doesn't sound politically correct, but a lot of these developing countries have issues that the wealthy ones don't. And so it is a huge investment to go into these places and hope for stability. And it's something to be discussed for sure. And The Economist argues that instead of special drawing rights, a better idea is to use public money to de-risk projects funded largely by the private capital markets. And I think that is an amazing fucking idea. Excuse my language. And The Economist gives an example of how, in quotes here, a solar farm in cloudy Germany needs to earn only 7% to win funding. And that's according to the Climate Policy Initiative, which is a research institute. But they also talk about how a similar project in sunny Egypt would require about, about a third when funding. And basically, if you allowed public investment to go along with private investment, you could help some of these projects stay stable. And also, you could reduce risk premiums, which would then help bring in more investment, right? And... There's actually an interesting organization that's doing a lot of good in this realm. It is called Just Energy Transition Partnerships. And basically, it's a pact between a group of Western countries and individual developing countries. And it hopes to mobilize, for example, I think, they, I think their first deal is with South Africa, if I recall correctly. And what they hoped to do was mobilize $10, $10 billion of private funding to go along with $10 billion of public money. And... The Economist says this would be effective because such focused coalitions provide clarity for investors and so make borrowing cheaper. Because let's just say the loud or the quiet part out loud, or let's just talk about the elephant in the room, is that 
a lot of a lot of private investment firms and a lot of private companies are hesitant about investing in countries with unstable public institutions. And that is something that needs to be talked about here as well. Is like there are places that this wouldn't work, but I think there's also places that this would work. So instead of saying let's put all of like like have the entire public sector like in China deal with this, why don't we have a balance between the uh, between the private and the public sector? I I like it. Again, I don't think anything is perfect, but I do like it. Because, I, I mean, I, I have to say at the end of the day, I think it's only fair that rich countries help support developing countries that have been impacted by climate change, right? I just think these climate conferences may not be enough, and I do like the idea of private and public coalitions and network building between them. I've always thought that, you know, just instead of throwing money at places with struggling infrastructure, because that's kind of what the current climate reparations crowd always talks about, is that we just throw money at these countries and i mean that's even kind of what this uh what this cop 27 plan talks about is we need to raise money to give to these countries well why don't we look at a way to better consolidate infrastructure and start moving from fossil fuels by helping these countries develop the right plans so i think it's a good idea i really do now lastly i'd like to keep it brief even though we're obviously we're already going longer than i was planning but I do want to talk about a new era of kind of a climate war or a climate cold war or even a climate arms race with China. Any of these descriptions would kind of suffice. But this is kind of a completely completely different topic that I think is important. And basically last week, President Biden met with President Xi, Xi Jinping, in what I thought was probably an important meeting, a necessary meeting. I believe, don't quote me on it, but I believe it was the first time they actually met. So I think that was interesting. And... We won't go into details about the meeting because that's not entirely like what I want to talk about here. But Xi and Biden discussed how there was no immediate threat of an invasion from China to Taiwan. Of course, take that with a grain of salt. Biden seemed to corroborate this. But again, like basically Xi was like, don't worry too much about us invading Taiwan. And of course, that's good news. Again, if, for sure, take it with a grain of salt. But it is good news because the Chinese invasion of Taiwan would completely cripple the semiconductor industry for the U.S. and other countries as well, for sure. And this is because even though we're working on developing our own sector, sector sorry, which would probably take over a decade at this point, maybe less, I'm not totally an expert, but at least the people I've read on this say this is not going to happen overnight or even over, <laughs> over a year. And the thing is, is that, yes, an invasion of Taiwan by China would completely cripple something we need for a lot of this electronic-based technology we're working on, which are semiconductors. And I was thinking about the ramifications of this. Well, I've been thinking about the ramifications of this, and I decided to do some digging into why semiconductors are not only important for almost all of our vehicles and modern technology, but they're also important for, you know, reducing carbon emissions. And they're kind of a dual-purpose technology or a dual-use technology because... We have to think, like, if we're moving away from fossil fuels, we need something to replace them, and that's electricity, right, mainly. And we need semiconductors in a lot of that electricity. We also use semiconductors for war. We also use semiconductors for drones, especially in the war in Ukraine. There's been reports about that as well. And what my concern in this case would be is that there's a lot of these dual-use technologies out there, and we seem to be going into some sort of a cold war with China or like an arms race, maybe as a better way to put it, over these materials and products which are both important for military technology, but they're also important for just like everything we're trying to do to reduce carbon emissions. And last month, the Biden administration 
I mean, I guess you could say effectively banned the sale of any modern semiconductor manufacturing equipment to China. Interesting. It also forbade, in quotes, U.S. persons, end quotes, which is a group that comprises American citizens, green card holders, you know, kind of everyone who's in the United States from working in the semiconductor industry in China. And this also leads to kind of a form of climate war, in my opinion, or it could, I guess is a better way to put it, against China, because it is a U.S. policy to basically stop China in its tracks from reaching goals of economic and security development. Like we are trying to ban imports from China and we're trying to create our own industry and we're also trying to not use any of theirs. So we are now kind of in a direct contrast or a conflict with what they want to do with their technology in reducing climate and military technology, etc. And one would say China will do the same with us, right? And it's not good for anyone because at first it would be bad because we are trying to globally reduce carbon emissions. And that goes back to my issues with these summits is you kind of need the whole world on board. And it seems like that's still not possible at this time. And so, yes, it could be difficult to shift to electric everything, basically, because we require semiconductors and it seems like we're battling over who supplies them. But it also could lead to somewhat of a hostile conflict if we keep playing this game of chicken with China. Um, The Atlantic has a good article recently about how, in quotes here, trying to prevent the other country's development can cascade from an economic disagreement into a military one. And later we'll kind of discuss how that sort of happened with Japan in World War II. But first, another article from The Atlantic discusses how what makes this dynamic even more tricky to manage is that the U.S. and China are productively, I guess you could say, using climate change as a venue for their own competition. One example that always comes to my mind is that um, President Xi has basically talked about China going to net zero carbon emissions by 2060, which is, I guess, more more realistic than some other countries who talk about it. And he conveniently talked about this net zero by 2060 goal less than two months before the 2020 U.S. presidential election. So it was clearly obvious that he was announcing this as kind of a middle finger to the Trump administration, a big jab at them, which was kind of sensible based on some of their policies. But anyways, the Atlantic article also discusses how these changes in rhetoric between China and the U.S., in quotes, demonstrates Xi's consistent interest in leveraging the climate agenda for uh, geopolitical purposes, end quotes. And of course, while China is doing quite a good job of moving towards all these renewables, the, the United States is also trying to keep up, right? And so we kind of have, okay, a, a disagreement over importing and exporting between the countries. Both are kind of using this climate change as almost kind of a new Cold War, like who can, who can create better arms or better technology to deal with it? And the U.S. needs to keep up. And, of course, I think a big positive of Biden is because everyone thinks Trump was hard on China. I would say Trump was like faux or pseudo hard on China. Biden's actually been much harder on China than Trump. I think it's just a fact at this point. And the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act was really probably good in the long term for us trying to compete. Now, I'm not really for us getting into some annoying political, geopolitical war with China or quasi like Cold War about this stuff. But what the reduction, sorry, the Inflation Reduction Act does do is it allows us to subsidize domestic, like, for example, solar panel manufacturing at a massive scale. And it's going to make it cheaper. And eventually we can probably make a shit ton of them. 
that we can give to a lot of other countries. And I'm, I'm sure China's doing the same thing. But this will also go along with, you know, Congress, what, it was a couple months ago, decided we, you know, we will have a stronger stance against China's semiconductors, work on our own. This all goes kind of hand in hand. So I, I'm interested to kind of see, like, what happens with this. But we, it does seem like we have China and the United States kind of going somewhat in contrast to one another in how they're trying to deal with climate change. And the problem is, is that for climate change to actually be something that the world at least can slow down, it can't be like an arms race or a cold war between two superpowers. It needs to be collaboration and cooperation. And again, like I'm fairly hawkish on a lot of China. I think it'd be stupid for them to invade Taiwan, for example. But I also thoroughly believe that China is not as stupid as Russia, for example, in invading Ukraine. I don't think China would do that unless they were, unless they felt like it was necessary. And this is not me defending China by any means. I think it's an atrocious regime in a lot of ways. But I also don't think that that's in China's goal to do that. Now, one concern is that I think as our economies get more and more intertwined with dealing with climate and climate reducing technology, which in some ways is good. It also becomes then the center of foreign policy, as I've kind of discussed between places like China. Because right now, the center of foreign policy, it seems like between places like the United States, Europe and China is climate and energy. And I'm not just talking about green energy, I'm also talking about fossil fuels. So what would happen if something like fossil fuels put us into a diplomatic beef as well? Because as scarcity keeps occurring, I, I do worry. And there's a guy named Dan Wang who's a technology analyst at a China-based research firm, economic research firm, which is Gavekel Dragonomics. Very interesting name, by the way. And he argues that fossil fuels could also be a problem for this kind of growing arms race or cold war between the United States and China. He notes that China remains dependent on oil and natural gas from abroad. And of course, they can get some from Russia, but ask me again in like a year or two how things are going in Russia, because that's all up in the air as well. But basically, he does discuss how the U.S. has become a large and growing exporter of natural gas to China. Like the U.S. actually, whether you like it or not, fracking and a lot of other technologies especially in Canada as well, we have actually created a pretty robust fuel industry. And say if we get to a point where the United States or China had more disputes or we move even more green, were the U.S. to cut off these exports, what could happen? Because we have to remember is that like the U.S. cut off fuel reserves and fuel exportation to Japan in the run-up to World War II. Now, Japan was imperialistic and very different than China, in my opinion. But if you have a country that already is opposed and ideologically different from a different country, um, economic embargoes or cuts in exportations or economic struggles, they can lead to um, they can lead to conflicts, I guess you could say. So like, this is a lot that I've covered, and I probably should have gone into more detail. So I apologize if this seems a little bit rushed. But I guess my thing is, is that we have like, kind of a cold arms race between the United States and China over renewable technology and the future of climate change, which will, I don't think, be good unless we work together. It also could be good because we're kind of pushing each other to do better. But we also have the idea that our economies are more and more dependent on these technologies and what happens if they're cut off. 
then we also have the idea of like what if things get to the point where we do cut off something that china relies like like semiconductors what if china cuts them off to us and we cut them off to china or we cut off fuel to china like a lot of things could happen here like and it's just something i wanted to touch on which i did more than touch on but anyways on that light note enjoy your thanksgiving i will be back probably on friday i might just take the weekend off we'll see but anyways take care you can find me on apple Podcasts, itunes podbean youtube spotify whatever else there is take care happy thanksgiving and um, enjoy yourself peace adios ciao